0: This Eufy Lock is fantastic and I highly recommend it. Search UFI Video Lock online. That's Eufy, E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com backslash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your front door. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your first stop for the best in Western style. And by the way, you don't have to be into the Western look to grab a good-looking pair of boots. I recently got a pair of ostrich skin round-tip boots, and I'm worn with my suit. These boots are so versatile that I can throw them on with a full head-to-toe suit. And Anthony Smith came right up to me, and he's asking me where I got them. I told them the only place to get them, to And they have a seasonal, limited edition offering. It's right now, this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, accessory, and more. My wife just surprised me with the ostrich wallet and a belt for my birthday, in case you've seen me. I feel like I look pretty sharp in it. I truly do, and Tacovas has first-wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, and shop for new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in store experience quite like it. If you can't make it into the store, just visit TCOBAS.com. That's T E C O B A S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to dacovus.com and find your favorite pair of boots today. What's happening, guys? Happy Friday, and thank you for joining another special episode of You're Welcome. I am on the road. I am in Las Vegas. I am working on a project, a movie. Rampage Jackson, Donald Cerrone, just a name drop. Westing Cage, a great Nicholas Cage's son, is in it. But I never wanted to miss an opportunity to speak to you guys, so let's get into it. So I'm in the middle of taking my victory lap on Juliana Pena, right? And you know that doesn't come very often. What have I been run a couple times this whole year to the point you guys started calling it the curse? Juliana contacts me. Coach Rick Little contacts me, says, "Hey." We've heard what you've been saying about Juliana. Great job. You've got it all right, except for one thing. I said, really, what is that? They said, and one thing that I was very big on when I was recapping this fight, and I had to be very critical of Amanda. I see it in my own, I would never kick somebody when they're down. I don't feel that I'm kicking Amanda. To be critical of Amanda are opportunities that we have very unfrequently. I woke up prior to that fight, believing Amanda... Noons was the greatest fight in the world. I woke up today believing Amanda's the all time great for the women's competitions. So I feel as though I can break down this one moment, still have sportsmanship, and pick it apart. And one of the things that I did in that assessment is I talked about the fact that that submission is not a submission. The submission was not on. Juliana did not have her hooks in, which means legs. Idiots in our sport call it hooks. She didn't have her legs in. And when that fight came to a conclusion, all the people that I watched it with were looking all around at each other. why they stop it? We had no idea that she tapped only because it wasn't a submission. And that is what Julianne wanted to correct me on. She said, Chael, you're wrong about that. It is a submission. I take the bone from my wrist. I put it right on the windpipe. It will break your neck if you don't tap. I learned that submission from Damian Maya." Okay. Well, that is a little bit different than I saw, and I don't know if it really needed me to come out and give this point of correction, but Julian and Rick Little reached out to me, so at least in their world, they did want that corrected. And I started thinking, why? What difference would it make? But it does make a difference. If a person quit, and that becomes the, the narrative, and that's false, they had to surrender because of a technique that you did, I could see where that could shine your wheels up a little bit more. And if you do go out there and you do what Juliana accomplished, which was to frustrate, which was to take down, which was to get position, and then ultimately finish was a submission, and somebody like me comes out and says, oh, no, you didn't. You did three of those four things, but she, she just clicked it in. I could see where you'd want that corrected, so I kind of wanted to take this time. And I actually even double-checked the story. I went to Damian Maya and said, did you show Rick Little the technique that he showed Juliana Pena? It was a whole thing. My point is only this. Incredible fight that looks like we're going to see again. The odds came out for that fight. Four to one favorite. Who do you guys think for? Juliana Pena just finished Amanda Nunes in less than 10 minutes. They're going to rematch. The same girls at the same weight class are going to follow the same rules, doing the same thing. Who do you think is the favorite five days later? Four to one Amanda, four to one Amanda. And there is generally a rule in fighting. It's much more true in boxing than it is in MMA, but it's very true in boxing and generally carries over to this sport as well, which is if two fighters compete and the younger fighter wins, if they rematch, the younger fighter will win again, only easier. That is an absolute guarantee in the world of boxing that you will not find an exception to. And when I did see what Juliana was able to do, Juliana's whole mindset going into this fight, that she told everybody, anyone who would listen, and there was a lot of people listening, she said, I'm going to take her down and she's never going to get up. Now, Juliana did not do a great job of looking for takedowns. But when she did look for one, she executed, she did finish, and Amanda never got up. So as much as you do believe that Amanda is going to learn from that fight, She's going to know what she's going to get herself into. She's going to be able to pace herself differently. She's going to respect and know what to expect a little bit more. I agree with you. That is true in rematches, historically speaking. But you're you're missing the point that Jewels learn too. You're missing the point that Pena also, regardless of outcome, gets to take away things within the performance. I think one of those things I just identified, she went for one takedown, and she got it. She's batting 100%, but it took her seven minutes to go for that one takedown. Probably looked her to do it a little bit quicker. And I will reflect back to the night that Rose was able to get the jump on Joanna Champion. They ran that one back to fix everything so Joanna could go get her belt back. Rose beat her again. So I'll let you guys decide. Four to one seems very disrespectful to me. Four to one, based on what we just saw, and the world willing to put their money where their mouth is, and say we don't think it should have happened the first time and we definitely don't believe it can happen a second time. I think that's interesting. I have no other point. I wanted to amend a statement I made. Jules has never lied to me before and she claims that this was a a hold that she had learned over the uh, years from watching and studying Damian Maya. So I want to amend that. And I just want to bring it to your attention. If you think 4-1 to Amanda is the wrong direction, you might want to get over to DraftKings right now. Daniel Cormier came out, he was talking about Amanda Nunes, and he made the comment that Amanda should have just gone to sleep. Now, that comment from DC came on the heels of Coach Mike Brown having to defend Dustin Poirier for Dustin tapping and Dustin not going to sleep. That is odd to me for a number of reasons. I mean, I'll just start with the coach in me. I have been told my entire life, and I believe it, and I preach to the generation that I work with, and I believe the philosophy, that you're gonna compete the way that you train. And I know that Daniel follows that belief system too. So is Daniel in a practice room where if you're caught in a choke, you fall asleep? You don't do what you're trained to do? And what good would it do is the other side of it? it? Is to show your bravery or to show that you're a fool? Because the rules call for you to tap out when you're in that position. You're going to show you're a fool, you're you're above the rules, and you want the whole world to see? Don't forget, the rear naked choke has not worked even 90% of the way it's appeared to you guys. The rear naked choke is what an athlete goes to and gives to his opponent when they've had enough. It's not, oh, I get broken down and the legs come in. You stretch them out and you get under the chin. You come this way and you come the other and you lock and then you twist it this way. That's the way you would show it in practice. But the rear naked choke that you guys have seen to the world, you've seen three out of every 10 that are real. So if you're faking the position as a way out, why wouldn't you just close your eyes and fake it? Did you guys not see Tito, Box, Anderson, Silva? When you've had enough, get tight and you just fall down and lay there. What's that? Why would you need to be all the way out? Why didn't to show the world I hung in there too long and I just simply don't know what I'm doing? My coaches didn't prepare me the right way. It seems like a little bit of a strange thing to do. As soon as your toast is burnt, you should know. I have the same problem with cornermen. You're not a good cornerman if you've never stopped a fight. It's as simple as that. If you believe that you should leave your athlete out there until they can no longer go on, you should have your license taken away. A good cornerman will get his athlete out of there the moment he knows my athlete can't win this fight. I've heard some trainers come, well, it was, he was having his rocky moment, and I'm so proud of him. Do you guys remember what Cain Velasquez did to Junior Dos Santos and they left Junior out there? Junior within the six-minute mark of those 25-minute contests had no way to come back. And it wasn't, well, he might catch one lucky punch. Kanga could drop his hands and Junior could hit him as hard as he could. Junior was exhausted. He had absolutely no chance. And he comes out looking like the elephant man. And you got to look around and go, who did that serve? Who is that better for? What kind of optics would it be if Amanda was snoring because she didn't know the sport well enough to know that she was tapped, right? That she had it tight. I've seen people in my own jujitsu class fall asleep. they're white belts, every one of them. It's not a natural reaction to tap. A natural reaction is go, ah, ow, ah. You have to train. You have to prepare to know how to tap. Nobody has ever fallen asleep in a black belt class that I've ever seen, nor would they, because they are trained. They know when they are caught. They let their partner know. I just find it to be a very bizarre concept. I don't know where you guys stand on it, because I have heard many people, Think that I'm a prude. Think that the person should fall asleep or or if your arm's in an arm bar and you know that you're caught, let it break. And there's an honor in that. And I understand that, that breaking an arm or breaking a leg in a submission is very different than falling asleep. I do get that concept. One injures you and you've got to be out for a period of time. The other one, you wake up and you suffer a little bit of embarrassment and get up and go home. It just seems like a very bizarre thing that somebody would would suggest for anybody else to do, particularly if you are in a coaching role. Because if it's good enough for Amanda, then that means that's the message that you're handing to your students. So you're telling your students when they're in trouble, instead of signifying what the ABC itself has brought in as the universal sign of surrender within our sport, you just go to sleep. It's just a weird concept to me. And I've seen plenty of people pretend to be knocked down. Did you ever see Bruce Seldon and Mike Tyson fight? I mean, those popcorn punches and Bruce is out there on ice skates and he's, he's falling down. Tito versus Anderson, just for a more recent example, where everybody's fine, but, man, I don't want to be out here. Close my eyes. He can't fall up and hit me. I mean, this is a real thing. This happened with a guy. The Raging Redneck was his fight name. And Wes Sims was his cornerman. And the raging redneck, this punch comes, and it misses. It misses by three inches, right? I mean, this is like Josh Thompson hitting Gerald but It just simply doesn't land, and he goes out. So the redneck goes out, but it's MMA. So he does this on his feet. So he comes down to the canvas thinking the is going to step in and break it. The referee does not, and the opponent comes down to follow up. So the redneck, who's pretending he's out when he sees the guy coming down, he tries to get out of the way he was pretending he was asleep but when the guy was coming down the raging redneck had to come back to life do whatever he did and and then the fight gets stopped so Wes Sims comes in and Wes Sims dealing with the redneck and Wes Sims has a a towel and he's like touching the redneck's face and when Wes pulls the white towel back there was blood on the towel and the redneck goes is that my blood? Wes goes yeah he passed out I swear to goodness I'm not making this story up he sees his own blood and he faints after twice pretending within the match that he had fainted. I just come back to it and go, if a corner man's leaving a guy out there too long, or if a coach who's coaching anybody is telling them, don't protect yourself at all times, even though that is the absolute number one golden rule in unarmed combat, don't do it. Suffer whatever you have to suffer. Assume that the referee will see it and let it off before your brain cells go and perhaps you never even wake up again. To hell with it. It's the right thing to do. And for what? For the optics? For the shot? Is that the shot that you want? Is that the highlight that you want? You're down? You know what you look like when you pass out? It's not great. Sometimes your eyes are open. Sometimes they roll back. Your mouthpiece, you got drool coming. A number of people have voided themselves. I mean, is that what you want to do? And I'm asking you guys. Because I know a lot of you think that that's a cool thing to do. Well, where do you stop it? If it's an arm bar, can we agree? Tap before your elbow hyperextends. If it's a heel hook, can we agree? You tap before your ACL tears. And can we also agree that if you don't do those things, you're a fool. We're not gonna look at you and go great luck with a speedy recovery. We're gonna go look at you, you're in pieces. You don't get to go to work anymore you got to go hobble around the house and you got to go under the knife. you got to deal with these doctors. you got to get an area. You're a fool, aren't we? So why is those submissions different than this submission? And I think that we also don't know what Amanda was feeling. There are chokes that come around your arteries. And a blood choke puts you up very fast. An air choke could take 30 to 90 seconds. A blood choke could take four to six seconds. But to hear Juliana Pena and Rick Little, her trainer, explain that technique, it was the wrist bone right on the windpipe. Well, now you're talking, all right, now you're talking about a broken neck. You're talking about something completely different. We don't know for sure that Amanda was ever choking because we don't know this technique. We don't know this technique because we've never seen it before. We haven't seen it before to the fact that experts like me didn't think there was a submission there, in all fairness. I don't know what had happened. Hadn't got her legs in. Juliana said after the fact, that wasn't designed to tap her out. It was to hold the position so I could come around and put my legs in. So I only offer it to you, we, we don't really know what happened there, but to make believe that anybody who's risking themselves to that level of unarmed combat should not follow the golden rule, which is protect yourself at all times. I believe to be irresponsible. Diaz and Poirier have taken to social media and it appears that they want to fight and they have agreed to fight in January. Now, that's not gonna happen. There's a lot of problems with that, why that can't happen, and I don't know that any of them are fair. I'm not claiming that they are. Diaz has been very open. Diaz deserves credit for his honesty, which is, I have one fight left, and I would like to do it because I want out of my contract. Now, the rumors of him boxing Paul, I personally believe to be true, but Diaz has made his intentions very clear. Poirier gets to have a little break. Can we all agree on that? And whether Poirier gets to have the break, or even if Dustin says, no, I want the Diaz fight so bad, I'll take it, put me back in there in three weeks, now you still have the promotion. And as great as that fight's going to be, the car that they're referring to in January has the heavyweights on it, which not for nothing, I believe, is going to be the biggest heavyweight fight of all time. It just doesn't need more help. That's a great fight. That's a big fight. You guys would all really like to see that. But the promotion is going to have to consider, is the squeeze worth the juice? How many big and expensive and mega fights do we want to put on a card, and do we want to put any fight on a card that can steal any level of attention away from what we're showcasing, which is the heavyweights? So it's just one of these tough situations. I like that Poirier is so gung-ho. Everybody likes Nate Diaz. Dustin's like the nicest guy in the whole sport, but for some reason, those guys don't like each other. Those guys you would think would be best friends. If you know Nate and you know Dustin, you're going to just assume they're going to sit down and have lunch together and hit it off. But they don't. These two are oil and water. That fight, I believe, that fight's got to happen. There's a few fights that I could use that expression for, though. I think that Diaz has to fight Conor McGregor a third time. I think that Masvidal needs to defend the BMF belt against Diaz. And I think that Diaz and Poirier got to get things settled. I mean, do you guys remember the backstory, though? Because Masvidal and the BMF title are relevant if you're talking about Diaz and Poirier. And a lot of people have forgotten the story. Those two, Dustin and Nate, were supposed to fight at MSG. And something happened, and I can't remember what it was, but it was on Dustin's side, where Dustin ended up coming out of the fight. Insert George Masvidal, create the BMF main event, off we go. But those two, Nate and Poirier, had agreed to do some business together. They're partners, and one partner didn't come to the table, which I think pissed Nate off, quite frankly. Nate made it known it pissed him off. Nate got other major opportunities, as did Dustin. But I don't think Dustin liked the criticism. Okay, fine. Whatever. Is that a reason to fight? That's between them. They think it is. I'm in for it. I'm just sharing that it's really hard. Everybody in fighting likes Nate. Everybody that ever meets Dustin likes. I mean, those two, you really think they'd be like workout partners. They'd be buddies. But for some reason, they're going to settle their dispute another way. I'm in. I'm in on all of it. And it looks as though they helped the matchmakers. They helped with promoting it. So now they've served Dana. They did everything right. They did everything that Dana would normally like. They just didn't give Dana time. They just didn't give him any time. And they're trying to get on a card a little bit too fast that Dana already has his ducks in a row for. I'm guessing, guys, I haven't spoke to Dana about this. I I don't know. I just know how Dana operates most times. And I sit back and study and observe it. I just think there's a couple of things that aren't going to work for him. Predominantly, the speed of the fight. And Nate is making it very clear. I want out, and I want out now. Whatever opportunity, whatever he sees, the sooner the better. And if there's any way, take a breath, to exhale, to wait just a second, because Chael brings up a damn good point. Nate versus Masvidal works. Nate versus Connor works. We don't have Connor yet. Connor still needs, by just reports I'm hearing, he needs four more months. Four more months until he's back, 100%, and then go into training camp, which puts him out realistically until about August. And that, uh, best case scenario, Nate is making it very clear. No, I want to be free and done and clear by then. Now, the whole thing bothers me only for one reason. I appreciate how open and honest Nate is being with all of us. That is generally just exactly how we would like to see it. I don't understand the concept as it pertains to Dana. You have Dana, a promoter, who believed in you, who took an opportunity, who worked his ass off, and who created you from a marketing standpoint. And once you get there, you turn and point the gun back at him. You're trying to go off and do something without him. And I see this a lot in MMA. I see it with coaches that help to get a guy to a certain level. Somebody else comes in and grabs him. Soon as they start making some money and something can come back to the gym, boom, somebody else sunk their teeth in them, and off they go. I see it with managers all the time. The manager gets a guy. As far as he can go, some other manager sits him down, gets a dinner, gets a coffee with him, promises the world, steals him from this manager. I see it all the time, but I don't like it. There has to be something in in life said for loyalty. And I do think it would be done a little bit differently if Dana was approached and Dana was at least offered an opportunity to be included, as opposed to I've made up my mind and I'm excluding you. That's me guessing. I would not have excluded my promoter. Everybody gets to do it their way. I only bring that to you because when I do take a look at this, I always end up just a little bit surprised. Look, there was nothing, guys, nothing. You remember the great Team Quest? Are you guys hardcore enough fans? Do, do you go far, far back, back enough to know about Team Quest? Team Quest was a top three gym in the world. For several years, it was gym of the year, but then the Brazilian top team started doing a great job. Militich started doing a great job. The American top team opens up and just becomes a factory. Top gyms in the world. And nothing destroyed that team more than the Ultimate Fighter. I do not have a single teammate. And we had a major end to the Ultimate Fighter because Randy Couture was the first ever coach. The first season ever, number one, was Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell. So when Randy coached, he was able to bring four or five of us right onto the show with him. Nobody knew what they were going in to. I was invited that. I didn't understand it. I didn't take it. One of my big regrets, Chris Lieben said yes, Nate Quarry said yes. Season two, Ed Herman gets in, Josh Haynes down the road, uh, Mike Dolce. And I mean, I could just keep going. Team Quest and the Ultimate Fighter, major opportunity for us to use that vehicle, which was the most powerful marketing tool in the entire sport for a meaningful amount of time. I do not have one teammate to this day that went on the Ultimate Fighter. Everybody I had that went through that process did not return to our gym. Now, I do have one exception, which is short fuse Ed Herman. But even Ed Herman left for five or six years, and then he came back. But Ed Herman is the only guy I have to this day that I had prior to the Ultimate Fighter. Nothing broke us up more. And our coaches and our managers never really seemed to understand that, and they kept putting people on the Ultimate Fighter, and they would never come back to the gym. So I offer you that story because it is very common. Over the the course of someone's life, You forget how you got there. You just forget. You think about it a little bit differently. Somebody else promises you there's going to be a big pot full of gold. You just got to do this and get over here. It's one of these things. That con is never going to quit working. Never will. Get rich quick. That is a scam that's been around from the beginning of time, and it will be here for the rest of time. That one will never quit working. You got to be careful. You got to be careful when you see it. Because the expression, too good to be true, that's the one that you want to keep your eye on. Do you want to have one great night somewhere as long as everything comes your way? Or do you want to have three memories that you can build? Do you want to have four and do you want to have five? You just got to ask yourself these questions. Nobody here is wrong. Everybody's done it above board. Everybody's been very honest in what they're doing. But there is a game that's going to be played. It is a game of chess and you're playing against the master. I submit for you, you don't have to, you just got to include him. Jake Paul has said he's gonna take two years and train MMA. And within two years of training MMA, he said this, I could even beat Tyron Woodley in MMA. Question is, is he right? He comes from a wrestling background. And the Pauls are tough guys. They're they're, they're rough guys. Nobody wants to admit that. They are, and they've proved it. But they're better at wrestling than they are at boxing, in all fairness. They are more likely to be the Golden Gloves equivalent in the world of wrestling right now than they are in the actual Golden Gloves of boxing. I believe that. Limited footage that I've seen, but I do believe that. I do know their history, and I know all about Ohio, and I'm here to tell you he would have a leg up two years, seems a little lofty. Set that aside because it's likely something we're never going to have to know. We're likely never going to have to debate this or figure it out. Why is Paul even talking about it? Why do all the boxers want to be MMA fighters and all the MMA fighters want to be boxers? Why is that? If you ever meet an athlete and you ever meet somebody in TV, all actors want to be athletes. All the athletes want to go and be actors. Why can't anybody be happy with what they got? And what kind of excuse that is? Like, what neighborhoods did you grow up in where you can get away with that? You go out and you whip somebody and the guy gets up after you licked him and says, well, yeah, but if if we had done this or we had done that, if that had been different, I I, I could have got you. You know, that actually got tested one time. You guys remember Matt Lindland? Matt Lindland got in a street fight in a parking lot of a Sherry's in Oregon City. Matt wins. Dude gets up and says, you couldn't have done that if I had my tennis shoes on. You only got me because I was in cowboy boots. My tennis shoes are right here in my car. I can prove it to you. When Matt told him, okay. Called a timeout to the street fight. Guy goes over to his forerunner, drops the hatchback, takes his boots off, put the shoes on, comes back out, they fight again. Matt beat him again. Oh, I should mention in the meantime, he had called his friends who were on the way down. And when they finally arrived and jumped out of the back of the truck, they had pipes and Matt has scars across his skull still to this day. But Matt did want to do it the guy's way. What? Why would you ever do it the guy's way? Matt did that one time he fought in MMA, and Matt was fighting for the money, make no mistake. Matt Lindland went and did a tough man contest. He had never boxed before. It was all boxing. He went and signed up for this. It was a 16-man bracket. So to win it, you have to beat four guys in one night, and Matt had never boxed before. He needed $1,000, and that's what it came with, $1,000 prize. So Matt shows up. They inform him, no, hey, man, this thing's all booked. He showed up like the same time the fans were coming in. Finds a pro and says, I'm in this tournament. They go, well, the whole thing's booked. You can't beat it. He's like, no, I don't think you understand. I'm going to be in this tournament tonight. I'm going to beat everybody. I need this $1,000. He had to get his wife a plane ticket. At any rate, something happened. Matt's in the tournament. He beats four guys in one night. He gets a $1,000 for it, but that was, a, that was a huge amount of money back. You want to know when $1,000 is a lot of money? When you ain't got it. My point being, he fought for money. And when Matt got into MMA, he goes over to Mexico. I saw this fight five times. This is like one, one of the holy grail tapes of MMA. But Matt does a fight. He stops the guy. Referee stops. TKO. The guy gets up and complains. Now, Matt doesn't have to do anything. This isn't broadcast to a worldwide audience. It's over. The decision was made. Matt's going to get his $2,500, which is what he went all the way to Mexico and got in a, a fight with the guy. No. Matt tells the ref, hey, he he says he's not done. Come on, bring him back. I'll do it again. So the referee is now in a position, because they didn't have a commission, where the referee could go talk to the opponent and restart the fight. There's just no reason that anybody in sound mind would do it. Matt told him to do it. So they fought again, and Matt kicked his ass again. Now, he only got the one pay, but I'm just suggesting for you, okay? Because I think that you guys will find that a very weird thing to do. And you'll probably really respect it. And you'll see the true competitor that was Matt Lindland, the guy that actually enjoyed the competition of battle. But you would also see it my way, which is this has already been settled. We're all done. Rematches are for a reason. They're not done that same night immediately following, right? Which does almost always make me think, why does somebody want to change the rules? Because every time that you go into battle, it's the people's court. You're agreeing ahead of time to settle our dispute here. And whatever the result is, we all agree to live the rest of our lives with that result. But nobody ever wants to. I mean, I've seen MMA guys that I respect, Chandler and Gaethje, one month ago, talking at the press conference, whoever shoots first is a coward. Whoever takes the first step backwards isn't a real man. And they're both like agreeing to it and change the way that they fight. Why? Why would you ever do that? Your opponent just gave you a a major tip that he doesn't believe he can stop your takedown. That's what he's telling you. And he's trying to goat you in and tell you you're a coward if you go for your takedown, that he secretly is really hoping you don't try or if you do, he's got the ability to defend. He just handed you a major clue. There's no special honor in going into somebody else's rules. There's no special honor in doing it again. There's no special honor in leaving your best weapons in the back. There's a reason that you train. There's a reason that you prepare. There's a reason that you have your sharpest tools and you should always bring them with you. Worry about looking good next time. This time, just win. Every fighter should have that same mindset. I want the biggest paycheck against the easiest opponent and I'll worry about looking good next time. Tonight, I'm just going to win. And the guys that do that, go on to have great careers. And the guys that don't put one pool in the boxing ring and they put one foot in the MMA cage and it's never worked out for anybody. Nobody's ever been successful at both at the same time. I don't believe that Paul's looking to go do this, but Paul does beat to the tune of a different drum. Your guys' opinion of Paul matters to Paul. He wants you to know he's a tough guy. He wants you to know that he worked hard and he sacrificed. He wants you to know that he has courage. And when you guys attempt to take those things away from him, it motivates him. That strikes me as a weird thing to be motivated by, but I do see it. And whether it's weird or not, it's not uncommon. And it's exactly what gets Jake Paul out of bed in the morning. And all athletes and competitors need something. And the guys that are doing it for the money, for the commas and the zeros, they don't get very far. It can't be about that. That's got to be a byproduct. This has to be competition first, me against you, your family against my family, my city versus your city, your state versus my state, my country versus your country. You can take it to any level that you want, but everybody needs something. Jake Paul is operating very successfully on hate, coming from people that he doesn't know who are doing something called trolling him over something that isn't regulated, known as the internet. I don't have a problem with it, but I also don't have a problem if Paul never does it. He can prove to me his grit. He can prove to me his guts. He can prove to me all the things that he's setting out to try to prove to all of you guys, and he can do that just in boxing. You could do it just in the world of wrestling. You could do it just in the world of track and field. Anything's hard, anything that's difficult, anything that would be easier, and human nature would make you want to sit down and stop, but you don't. You go forward anyway. I will look at you for what you want me to see, which is a winner. Jake Paul Tyron Woodley. I must tell you, in the world of excitement and anticipations I have for fights, this is not towards the top of my list, but there is some cool stuff happening here and it's being done by Jake Paul. Think about it from this perspective. Why does Jake Paul need to be on this car? Why did he work to keep this intact when his opponent pulled out? Why is he taking on somebody he was completely unprepared for who we already beat? You're not gonna find an answer. And if you turn to the usual suspects, money, attention, fame, Notoriety, no, 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 and no. So why is he doing it? He's doing it because he's a pretty selfless guy. Why he doesn't need this fight and it doesn't make any difference in his life whether this competition goes on as scheduled or not, there's 18 other people on the card whose years and holiday seasons will be ruined if they're not able to go to work that day. That's what Jake Paul's doing this for, and he's taking an enormous risk in doing it. Very hard to imagine a way to succeed for Jake Paul. Everybody, you guys, give him such a hard time anyway. Even if he goes out there and beats somebody, you, we re-engineer it to give him a hard time. And I'm just encouraging you, be a little more open to this guy. John Jones, by example, and this really isn't me looking to pick on John, it's just a name that you guys wouldn't know. But John will come out and talk about: I'm doing this and I'm doing it for the rest of you. I'm a leader amongst the boys. I'm standing up for the boys. Anytime John has been put in that position to actually prove it, he's tucked his tail and ran. He is a selfish prick who will only do what's good for him. The end. But so are most other guys. I can't think of an example quite like this one, where the most famous and wealthiest guy on the entire card is the one that made sure that the golden rule, that the show must go on, stays intact. And I want Jake to get his credit for that. I am not picking Jake in this fight. I'm picking T-Wood. I thought T-Wood was going to beat him the first time. And I do think that T-Wood made some very clear mistakes in the first fight that had he not made, he would have won the fight. And I just don't imagine that he's going to do it again. I think one thing that people are going to, and I'm hedging everything on this. If I'm wrong about T-Wood's conditioning and level of fitness, I'm wrong about everything coming out of my mouth. But I don't think I am. T-Wood looks fantastic. And when fighters aren't training, it's very visible. They gain weight. There's a way that they look. There's a jawline that you don't see because their face gets puffy because they've been out at the bar drinking too much. I saw T. Wood at the thriller event. They threw him on camera. He looked like his body was carved out of stone. The same he always looks. He looks like he's going about 187 pounds, same as he's always weighing. I think he's training. I think he's in shape. And maybe he wasn't fully training for a fight, getting that extra workout in a day, getting the sprints in on Sunday morning. Maybe he wasn't doing that, but he looks like a guy that's in the gym regularly. And that even on two weeks notice, three weeks notice can snap his fingers and get right back there. And I do think one of the things that held back on T-Wood is as good of a fighter as he is and experienced as a fighter is. And I'm going back to their first fight. T-Wood versus Jake, what the hell happened? Well, the output of T-Wood was not normal. He came out of that fight, he was able to breathe just fine. His lungs held up, his legs held up, his chin held up, his conditioning was good. But he didn't know that. As much as he wanted to say it and he wanted to believe it and he wanted it to be true, he did not know because he'd never done it before. He'd never been in there under those rules. He never only had to rely on a left and a right. He could grab you. He could take you down. He could clinch you. He could hang on to you. He could maybe choke you. He could throw a leg kick in there. There was just a number of things that t could do that he's used to doing. All of a sudden, all of his energy is going in to four shots, draw a jab across an uppercut and a hook between two hands. He didn't know what he was getting into. And I did think his output was surprisingly low, particularly in rounds one, two, and three. It just looked like he was a little hesitant to put his foot down on the gas. And I only bring that to you because I think if he would have thrown more shots, they would have landed more shots and he would have won the fight, which was a pretty close contest to start with. I think we can all at least agree on that. There was even a point where it looked like t had Jake hurt, but T-Wood didn't see it. It's just not what he's used to doing. T-Wood's used to hurting a guy and knowing the guy's hurt because the guy falls down to the canvas. Jake went into the ropes and recovered. I mean, even though that was just one moment of the fight, I only suggest for you the naiveness of your former world champion from a different sport didn't fully know how prepared he was. And whatever T-Wood's motivation was for part one with Jake, it is more now. That's just good logic. Now, Jake's got a, bu- a bunch of pluses in his column, too. Certainly, he gained confidence. Certainly, stopping an Olympian in Ben Askren and then beating a UFC champion in t Wood. Staying fully focused, knowing this fight was coming up, doing the press door, doing everything right, eating right, sleeping right. Certainly he feels like he has a little bit of an edge. And in most cases, he would be right. The last minute guy is at a disadvantage. I just, the footage I saw, this is from a distance. This is on my couch, watching TV in my living room. I thought T would look great. I really did. I've seen some stuff T would put out on social media. I think he looks great. You don't just walk around looking great. You got to earn that. You got to be eating right and sleeping right yourself you got to be getting in instead of staying out yourself. you got to be getting up and getting in the gym instead of not yourself. So I think T. Wood's within distance. I do give the motivation to T. Wood. But moreover, who learned more from that first fight? It's got to be T. Wood. It's got to be. Throw more punches. Be more active. Go to the body. Come to the head. Punches and bunches. Get in. Get out of the way. Don't stand around and, and wait after you rob the store. That's a Clayton Hires expression, by the way means hit your target and get out of the way. Don't stand there and wait for the police to show up. Get the hell out of there. All right. I'm sticking with T-Wood. I think he got a long fight. I don't think T-Wood's going to finish him. I'm very confident telling you guys that Jake isn't going fi- to finish T-Wood. Is it the curse? Maybe. Maybe. But who told you about Pena? Who told you about Oliveira? Maybe it's not a curse after all. Maybe old Chales finally worked through a few of these kinks. Maybe old Chael is the great Nostradamus that I used to be. Maybe I'm back. And if I am, that means T Wood's back too. All right, guys, my official prediction for Derek Lewis versus Chris Dawkins. I'm taking Derek Lewis. Now, let me explain the math. Let me tell you guys the equation that I went through, and I don't know that many of you are going to disagree with me because I don't think any of us are terribly familiar with Chris Dacus. Here's what I believe about Dawkins. I believe Dacus and two to three other heavyweights that are already on the roster, already signed, just haven't been given their opportunity to be in a main event, to be showcased. I think the next three, four, and five heavyweight stars that are going to run the organization and play musical chairs with the belt amongst them are already found. I think they're already here, and I think that Dawkins is one of them. How am I picking against him? Well, Docus has never been in a fight this big before. Docus is a good, fun guy. But even if I just go to his very last fight, which did not go the distance, or I could go to his fight before that that did not go the distance, I do come away having to wonder, what is he going to look like if he does go 15 minutes? And this fight, because it's a main event, now it's 25. Now, I'm questioning his conditioning. I've never seen Dawkins' conditioning be a problem. In fact, everything I've seen from Dawkins, I really like. But because that question hasn't been answered, because we don't know it, my mind defers to he's not ready for it. That's not fair by me. That's not fair at all. But that is part of the equation that I went through. Derek Lewis has been in plenty of five-round fights you don't need to correct me and tell me whether they went there or not. I'm talking about preparing, training, getting his body and his mind ready to go out into that atmosphere. His very last fight, Derek Lewis, was scheduled for 25 minutes. And the first time that you do it is usually your hardest time. And not necessarily physically as much as mentally. Because Docus would have to concede back to me the things I just suggested. Docus would have to say to me, yeah, you know, I've never been scheduled for a 25-minute fight. I don't fully know what to expect. I did the rounds in practice. It's difficult. I think I can hold up. Okay, great. But that is going to be tested. And when you get tested in this kind of an atmosphere, because we always talk about pressure. Who's got the pressure on them? But we never take the time to explain to the audience why pressure matters. Pressure creates a chemical that when it is released through your body creates a fatigue. It just gets you tired. So Dacus has a lot of pressure on him having a spotlight having a main event, being on the worldwide leader of ESPN, taking on a well-known heavyweight prospect in Derrick Lewis. I'm guessing, again, it's not fair by me. It's not fair because I don't know if I'm right. But I decided that that's going to be a negative to Docus. All right, so what? How can Docus beat him and straight up one way knock him out? When's the last time you saw somebody knock out Derrick Lewis? When's the last time you've seen somebody knock down Derek Lewis? Derek Lewis's last fight is with the greatest striker in the division. One of the most powerful, but the greatest, the most technical. Took a lot of shots, did Derek, But he didn't go down. He didn't go out. So we're, we're left to believe that Dawkins has some kind of a thunder punch that can do more damage than the damage of a punch from the current interim champion, Surreal, gone. It's a leap. It's a leap. I don't think he can out-wrestle him. Derek Lewis is very hard to hold down. He's very difficult to take down. So now you're left to punch and trade with him. Derek Lewis is not likely to go push hard for all 25 minutes either. He's likely to land a big shot and get out of there. So now you're left. Who is more likely to land the shot that can put the other one down, right? It's a tough battle. I'm not big and bullish on Derek Lewis in this. But I have seen Derek Lewis get tested. I know what he can do when the lights are bright. And I've also seen him down before. And he has always proven an incredible ability to rebound and come back. I think this is the worst time to fight Derrick Lewis. To be Derrick Lewis's first opponent when he's coming off of a loss historically has been the worst time to have to fight Derrick Lewis. Now, that's not a lot, guys, but we don't know a lot about Dawkins. And between the two of them, I'm more excited about the future of Dacus. I think he's going to come out of this thing Monday morning and be a much better fighter. One, he's going to get the win, and I'm wrong. Okay, great. Very very likely, right, with my record. The other side of it is even if he doesn't win, he's now going to learn what it is he needs to work on. He's now going to learn how he can do with those great big heavyweights. Lewis is as heavy as they come. He's going to learn what setups he needs. He's going to learn what the attacks need to be. He's going to, learn, he's going to learn about pacing. He's going to learn, I never should have been nervous for that fight. I never should have ooh and ah just because I was the main eventer. I want to be a main eventer. And by the way, we're doing the same thing just a little bit later in the evening. But you don't know that till you go through it. Your coaches will tell you. And you'll read about it in self-help books. But when you actually go through it, man, everybody's telling me the truth. The event is the same. The atmosphere has changed. And these are some real positives that Docus is going to go through. All the greats have a loss somewhere. So I don't think anything bad is going to come from Docus. And if I'm wrong and he does win, I'm at least right in that. He's going to do it by knocking the beast out. And if Dawkins, who's now a first-time main eventer, can be the guy that knocks out Derek Lewis, it's going to be meaningful. I think that e- either way. I'm going to stand by my initial statement that the next three, four, and five great heavyweights that we're all going to know and hear them, 2023, 2024, I believe they're already here, and I believe Dacus is one of them. All right, guys, that's it for today's show. If you enjoyed it, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you like and what you dislike. And thank you for the support. I can't say it enough. I'll be back in the near future. But until then, I'm Chael Sonnen and you are welcome.